Okay, Isaiah 45, 1 through 7, our old covenant reading and our sermon text for this morning. Isaiah chapter 45, verses 1 through 7. This is God's word. Thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord. And there is no other besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. I just want to make one comment here before we go to our New Testament reading Remember that in our English translations, when Lord is in all capital letters in the Old Testament, it's the word uh, Yahweh or Jehovah, the great I Am. It was not a common name for the idols of the nations. The word God, Elohim, or El, forms of that, the nations would use that to you know, talk about their gods too. But when he says, I am the Lord, so you will know I am the Lord, I'm God, he's using the special name He's revealed only to Israel. So that's, that's the point. You don't want to miss that point. That it's this God who revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is this one true God, who creates darkness and light, etc. Now let's turn over to Romans chapter 13 for our New Testament reading, verses 1 through 7. I've chosen this because of the statement that the Apostle Paul makes that there is no existing governmental power that is in power except by God's plan. That God is in charge, even whoever is in power. That that God has not lost control. Romans chapter 13, beginning at verse 1, God's holy word. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is old to them, taxes to whom taxes are old, revenue to whom revenue is old, respect to whom respect is old, honor to whom honor is old. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Well, let's come back now to 
Isaiah chapter 45. And uh, the interesting thing about Isaiah is the, how explicit many of the prophecies about Christ are found to be in this, this prophecy. So much so that some of the old uh, Puritan commentators would actually talk about, you know, the, the gospel according to Isaiah. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Isaiah. Almost like a fifth gospel account only given actually seven centuries. This is about 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And uh, so that's what we have here. And what's interesting here is, though, that this text that we've just read isn't explicit about Christ, this, these particular seven verses, yet that's where it's going to. We're, we're going to move from talking about the Lord's anointed, a pagan king named Cyrus, who actually was quite a famous ancient king even in secular sources, uh, a vast empire, and that's actually being talked about here uh, a couple hundred years ahead of time, and actually calling him by name a couple hundred years ahead of time. Uh, but uh, ultimately, it's about Jesus Christ, a much greater anointed of the Lord. And there's a, there's a parallelism that we find in these, this chapter and the ones that are immediately following where though there's a lot to contrast between wicked old Cyrus, and he was a pretty wicked guy, and our sinless Lord Jesus Christ, that there's one point of similarity that makes Cyrus at one point a type or prophetic picture of Christ, and that is that God appointed him to come and give a deliverance to the people of God, to God's elect. And of course, uh, uh, for Cyrus, it's that uh, though the Babylonian captivity hasn't taken place yet when this prophecy is given, uh, and it lasts for 70 years, God, by his Holy Spirit, looks ahead and says, I'm going to raise up this pagan king, uh, Cyrus, and he's going to allow my people to come back to the promised land after that exile. They're going to be given a deliverance from, from exile. And uh, Jesus Christ gives us a, an eternal deliverance from sin and from the judgment that our sin incurs. And so there's a lot of contrast there between the two, but that's the one point. See, in most types, there's just mainly one point that's the, the, the place where the parallelism is to be found. And this is that there's this anointed king. And so as we, we move on, this, there's the anointed servant of the Lord, Cyrus. We're gonna, we're, we'll move on and we'll see the anointed servant, and, of course, what does um, Messiah in the Old Testament Hebrew and Christ in the New Testament Greek mean? It means the anointed, the anointed of the Lord. And so we're, you know, Cyrus is this picture. Now, to help us look at this text, I'm going to have you turn with me in the back of your Psalter hymnal, page 922. 922. This chapter, this whole section of Isaiah is an incredible illustration of many of the statements made in regard to the doctrine of God's providence, that God is in control of all things and he has a plan that includes everything. And it's all going to be for the good, the glory of Jesus Christ and the good of the people of Jesus Christ in the end. 
And so I wanna, I'm going to have us just start with looking at some of these statements here. Um, because this is, there are incredible claims we make for God in our confession here, all throughout the confession. But here in this chapter on God's providence, look, look at what we, we uh, confess to believe. Section 1. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible knowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. That's a a very all-inclusive statement there. Nothing ever has happened or ever will happen in this whole created universe that has taken God by surprise. He is in control. It's all part of his plan. That doesn't mean that he's the instigator of evil. But it does mean that even evil never took God by surprise. God was never out of control even when he allowed evil to take place within this whole big plan he has. And it's all going to result in his glory. Or look at section 2. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, yet by the same providence he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. This is part of what helps us see that that God can have the evil as part of the plan, and yet he's not the one doing the evil. He can make use of moral agents who have gone wrong. Angels and mankind is what we're talking about. And he can have planned all that, and they're the ones responsible for their evil, but he can pick it up and and use it all, and has planned to use it all for his ultimate glory, and for the actually, actually the triumph of righteousness in the end, and the vindication of those who are his. And part of the thing is, what they're saying here is that normally... Normally, God works through what we call secondary causes. Now, this is kind of philosophical language here. God, the first cause. He's the, ultimate, he, he's the one who's ultimately planning all things. But he works through secondary causes as his normal approach. And then it mentions, um, it divides those up by category, necessarily, freely, or contingently. Uh, necessarily. If I jump off a building, what direction am I going to go? Now, there's the way the universe has been constructed. I'm going to go down, aren't I? I'm not going to float up. I'm not going to remain suspended in the air. I'm going to go down. So there's the law of gravity there, necessarily. Freely, if I jump off a building and no one's pushed me, then that's my choice. It was a wrong choice. It was a bad choice. I had no right to make that choice uh, before God. No moral right. But... I did it freely. We don't deny that there's a kind of free will. We believe that, that uh, mankind and angels are made with true moral responsibility and do make true choices. But as Calvinists, we know that even that's all within God's plan and God's control and God's wise providence. And yet... Um, He's not responsible then for the the wrong choices we make. And then contingently, maybe I jump off the tall building so I can end my life, but maybe they were cleaning windows about one floor below and they had 
they had one of those scaffolds set up, and I, it doesn't happen the way I thought it was going to happen. Contingently, I, I break my leg and I don't die. And that was contingent on the fact that just so happened, without me knowing it, that they were washing windows that day. And that uh, another free agent had set up a scaffold that day, and I did not, um, I did not die. So that's what that's saying there. But number three, God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. God doesn't have to work through secondary means and doesn't always work through secondary means. And also there's the whole element of miracles. I think this is a bigger statement than just miracles, but it includes the miracles. You know, there's no natural explanation for Jesus walking on the Sea of Galilee or for him turning water to wine. And if you take all the facts that are given to us, um, him raising Lazarus after three days in the tomb, and there was already a stench of death, but he raises him from the dead with a spoken word. That's a direct act of God, it seems to me, that God works directly and brings about something that there's no other explanation far than that God was at work. And then go down to number seven. Actually, the others are very relevant too, but uh, I can't take too long this morning. Uh, Number seven is, the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner it taketh care of his church and disposeth all things to the good thereof. What is God's big plan about that includes everything? Well, it's about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ and the, the victory that we, the people of Jesus Christ, have by our union with him. You, Christian, you, congregation, are actually at the heart of this great big eternal plan of God. You, in Christ, are part of the main point the universe even exists. And um, that, that is such an incredible idea to think about ourselves that we would feel embarrassed to actually make that statement about ourselves if, if it wasn't really taught in God's word. God makes that statement, that, that in Christ we take on a cosmic and um, universal, uh, universal both in space and time importance. And think of how people long to have meaning and purpose, and think of that as a meaning and purpose that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe all these points I've just read from our confession are made here or or implied here in our text. I could use this text, I think, to demonstrate, at least illustrate all those points. God is in control of this future pagan king. And he makes it clear to his covenant people around 200 years before that king is even here on earth, before Cyrus is born, before his parents are born, probably before his grandparents were born. And we're not talking one of the sons of David. We're talking a pagan king of a nation that's not at this point when the prophecy is given, the big empire, you know, the big guy on the block. He's not the big bully yet. That's even yet to come in the future. So I try to think of something that would be, give us a fill for what this would be. And I do not believe 
in ongoing prophecy. I believe once the New Testament was completed, the Bible was distributed, um, you know, that prophecy uh, discontinued. But just for the sake of the illustration, let's say that a pastor here in North uh, Andover, during the time of George Washington's uh, administration, the, the first president of our nation, during his first term, gave a prophecy that, you know, around 200 years later, a former movie, movie star by the name of Ronald Reagan would become president and would work at balancing the budget. Now, they wouldn't know what a movie star was, you know, uh, much less, you know, give his name and everything. That would be no more spectacular than what's taking place here in this text. So much so that the liberals who were anti-supernatural in their approach to what they called Christianity wanted to deny that, that these sections of Isaiah were written at the time they claimed to have been written. And actually the Dead Sea Scrolls kind of blew their, some of their liberal views out of the water because here were portions of Isaiah that they claimed were written way after the fact, see, that now we had portions that took us you know, back so far that, yes, Isaiah was the prophet through whom these were given seven centuries before uh, Christ came and a couple of centuries before this is fulfilled. By name, this man is uh, given to us here. And, and the, the point is, is that the destiny of nations is in God's control. And all of this is being organized and orchestrated for the good of God's covenant people, the people who trust in his word. What comfort this is to the people of God. Now, I've entitled my sermon, The Heart of the King is in the Hand of the Lord. Some of you recognize, that's from the book, book of Proverbs, Proverbs 21, verse 1. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, like rivers, the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. You know, we can change, we can change the channel of a river and make it flow a different direction. I pastored in Indiana a long time ago when I was a young man, and they had changed the whole course of a small river there to make more and better farmland. Uh, and they just they just dug another channel and just redirected a river. How easily God could do that. And here he says, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And he can direct it as easily as, as changing the course of a river. The same point's being made in our text for this morning. This is a particular example of that general principle uh, in regard to providence. The point is that the, the God who is in control of all things... All the nations and all their rulers is always working on behalf of his faithful covenant people. No matter how much opposition from the world we might face. And I think some of you who are quite a bit younger than I am, if our society continues on the course it seems to be set on, you may experience a lot more actual open opposition than, than we did when I was a young man. Uh, no matter how much opposition from the world we might face as far as our Christian confession and witness, no matter what earthly trials we might be experiencing due to evil in high places, the one true and living God is in control and is always, every second, working on behalf of his own people in Christ. And this is proven here with this instance involving Cyrus and post-exilic Israel. So let's first look at the text itself and just follow the logic of the prophecy. Verses 1 through 3, Jehovah prophesies of Cyrus. 
and the military success that Cyrus will be given by God. He refers to Cyrus as his anointed. Think of that. This, this is not a nice guy. This, this is not um, a benevolent despot. No, this is the other kind of despot. You know, he, uh, he killed a lot of people, both his enemies and anybody who stood up against him in his own country. He's not a nice guy. But God, for this one purpose, refers to him as his anointed. He's the one who's chosen by God, divinely appointed before he even existed, to do a certain task in the future for the good of God's covenant people. Jehovah affirms that he will hold Cyrus's right hand, which speaks of giving Cyrus success in all his labors, victory in all his battles. This is not to say that Cyrus himself will recognize that it's Jehovah giving him this victory. He, he doesn't know Jehovah. He says it twice here in the text. He, though he doesn't know me, yet I have sent him and I'm doing this. I'm doing this uh, on his behalf. Jehovah will allow Cyrus as king of Persia to conquer other nations. They will not be able to successfully defend themselves. God will loose the armor of kings to open before Cyrus the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. This means that these these other kings of these other nations will have no military success whatsoever. They won't be able to keep Cyrus and his invading army from riding into their capital cities in complete victory. Why? Because Cyrus was such an incredible general? Because his armies were so invincible? I'm sure he... That's, I'm sure that's how he looked at it. But God says, no, it has nothing to do with that, really. It's because I've determined that. One of the names for, uh, one of the titles Jehovah takes to himself in the Old Testament is Jehovah of hosts, the Lord of hosts. You know that word of hosts in the Hebrew is just armies? The Lord of armies, you know, the angelic army in heaven, you know, all earthly armies on earth. You know, I don't, I don't care what army it is, they might think they're in charge, that they have power, and they have only the uh, success or the, the victory or defeat that God chooses to give them at any given moment. Verse 2 is affirming that Jehovah will enable Cyrus and his army to push through any obstacle that stands in their way. High places will be leveled Bronze gates with bars of iron will not be able to keep Cyrus out. But God has determined no opposition by mankind or nature can nullify. In verse 3, God will give Cyrus the secret and hidden treasures of these kings. And he doesn't say it here explicitly, but it does later on regard, I believe, to um, Sennacherib. That uh, when God would use these pagan kings and give them victory and accomplish his purposes... And one way they could view is almost like earthly wages, the plunder they took. Okay, he's, he's, he's accomplishing the plan I have for him, and, and he, he's not doing it for my glory, he's doing it for his own glory, but because it's accomplishing my purpose, then those earthly treasures he conquers, that's, that's the pay I'm giving him. And the reason for this is found in the last part of verse 3, that you may know that I, Jehovah, who am calling you by name, So far ahead of time, I am the God of Israel. That is, that the one true God is the God who has revealed himself to the nation of Israel, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the twelve patriarchs and the nations that flow from them. 
He's Jehovah God, the great I am. All the other so-called gods are dumb and dead idols. Cyrus will know this if he'd just think through it, if he just listened to reason. His very existence and his victories were all foretold long before he even was on the scene by this one true God of Israel who alone is obviously in charge. One of the things that Isaiah, a point he makes later on in this, the following chapters here, is that none of the idols could, could do what he was doing. None of them could make these prophecies and they would all come to pass. You know, here, here this is a proof. And, and no one's going to believe the gospel because the proofs are, you know, our sinfulness keeps us from, from using proper reason. But when we do come to believe the gospel by the grace of Jesus Christ, we realize God had put objective evidence there before us all the time. It was our, our sinful blindness is the only reason we, we wouldn't or couldn't think through it. And here God says, if, if he just think through this, he would see that I obviously am the one true God. Verses 4 through 6, Jehovah will bring all this to pass with regard to Cyrus for the sake of his covenant people. For the good of Israel to strengthen their faith in the one true God, their God. Cyrus didn't know the true God, verse 4. Yet the true God will call Cyrus by name, by prophecy far in advance, and by providential circumstances at the time of the fulfillment. This is and will be the case even though Cyrus doesn't know the true God in a saving way. If Cyrus ever came to know the true God... It was only after the fulfillment of this prophecy. I'm not saying he ever did, but if he did, it wasn't during the time that this was fulfilled. That that should be an encouragement to us. Sometimes our earthly circumstances seem to be under the control almost entirely from a human point of view of human authorities or those who are in, in human power. And we need to remember that As far as we, God's people in Christ, are concerned, never are they the ones really in charge of what's happening to us. Our God and the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, as the Son of Man, risen from the dead, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, He's the one who's really and truly in charge. God will do all of this. The calling of Cyrus giving Cyrus victory over other nations for the sake of Jacob, his servant, that is, of Israel, his elect or chosen one. Now, along in the same way, God is predestined to save all those whom he has given to Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus talking about that in the Gospel of John, particularly chapter 6? All that the Father gives to me will what? Verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And those who come to me, I will by no means, what? Cast out. You know, there, there it is. There, there's a people given to Jesus Christ. There is this elect people, the chosen of God. And there's God's anointed servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ, who will save us and has saved us by his grace. The nation of Israel in the Old Testament was an earthly theocracy. Children, maybe you remember from school, a theocracy, unlike a democracy uh, or a monarchy, a human monarchy, a theocracy is a nation governed by God. That would be the literal meaning of it. Uh, often we will refer to 
uh, maybe a Muslim nation that has religious rulers in charge as a kind of attempt at a theocracy. But uh, there is one theocracy, if we're thinking in terms of what God has established as far as an earthly theocracy, and that was the Old Testament nation of Israel in this covenant relationship with Jehovah God. The church of Jesus Christ in the New Testament is a theocracy. We're an eternal and spiritual theocracy in covenant relationship with Jehovah by Christ's blood and righteousness. For post-exilic Israel's sake, Cyrus is raised up and given victory over these nations so that Israel can come back to the promised land for that brief period of time. For the sake of those God has chosen for eternal life, Christ is raised up and given victory over sin, death, and hell. It's all for the sake of God's people. In verse 5, all of this proves that Jehovah is the true God, that the God of Israel, the creator and sustainer of the universe, is Jehovah. That there is no other God. He alone is God. And because he is the one true God, he will gird Cyrus... That is, he will strengthen and equip Cyrus for victory, again, even though Cyrus doesn't know or acknowledge or recognize Jehovah. Why? Verse 6. So that people from all over the world will know and confess that there is no other God besides Jehovah God of the Bible. They will confess that he is Jehovah, the great I am. There is no God besides him. Do you know this? Uh, the spirit of our day here in postmodern America is to deny this, isn't it? That there's one true God. And actually, the, the ideal that you know, you, God is for you, whatever you want him to be for you, if you think through it, it's really just a form of atheism. It's, it's a refusal to believe there is a God who's actually there and is whoever he is regardless of what I think about him. So that this kind of extreme relativistic approach to the idea of God is just a form of atheism or perhaps agnosticism. It, it, de- it denies any true knowledge of a true God. And so I make up my own God. Which, which way do you go? Do you recognize that this God, the God of the Bible, is the one true God Or are you trying to reinvent him along with many in our time? We're told here, from the rising of the sun to its setting, from the east to the west and all throughout the day, Jehovah's people will know that he alone is God. By the way, I think that's ultimately or indirectly a prophecy of the missionary work of the church in the New Covenant. From the rising of the sun to the setting, if we're thinking geography there, Everywhere, the true God is recognized as the true God. And we've seen that from the spread of the gospel throughout the nations, in the church, not only on every continent, but in most countries. And even in many tribes, there is the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, People out of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And that prophecy is being fulfilled. And then, finally, to finish up our text here, verse 7 Jehovah God is in charge of all events. He forms light, he makes peace. He creates darkness and calamity. He's behind it all, ultimately. God forms light and well-being, or that could be translated peace. Peace. 
He enables sinners in their state of spiritual darkness to see the truth, have spiritual light, to turn to him and be reconciled to him and have well-being with God or peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. And even on a more earthly level, it's God who creates the light of the solar system in the beginning. It's God who gives us the light of reason as human beings. When there are times of peace, relative peace between nations or peaceful times, for individuals, families, or larger groups, that comes from God. He brings about reconciliation, not only between sinners and himself, but especially in the church of Jesus Christ, peace between sinners and our human relationships. But he not only forms light and makes peace, he creates darkness and calamity. He closes the minds of those who reject his word, as you can see back in chapter 44 of Isaiah. They choose darkness, and he gives them what they choose. He gives gives them what they choose. They're unable to see the truth and turn to him because they have rejected the truth. And so they experience calamity, both God's temporal judgments in this world, and if they never repent, never turn to him in time in Christ, eternal calamity in the next world. When sinful mankind is too blind to see the right way to go, and this leads, as it does, to wars and conflicts and calamities on the right hand and on the left, this is because God has ordained it and brought it to pass as the just penalty for sin. Do you see that implied in this, then, is the ideal that part of the temporal judgment on sin is sin. In other words, you know, we choose sin... And sin brings with it misery, and we get further from God, and we become even greater sinners, and our misery gets even greater. And so wars, you know, don't start out originally as just a war between two nations. It starts out with individuals, and enough individuals, it leads then to this this larger conflict, and ultimately it is sin. Who is going to bring about exile and destruction for the covenant people of God? It's not yet taken place here. He's he's prophesying the return from it, but it's not even taken place yet from the viewpoint of Isaiah. Who's going to bring it about because of the, the sin of God's covenant people? Jehovah God, whom they have sinned against. Who's going to restore them and bring them back and cause King Cyrus to issue the decree for the rebuilding of Jerusalem? The same God. Because he alone is God, and he alone is always in control. Who destroys the reprobate for their self-chosen sin and darkness? The one true God whom they have rejected. Who saves the elect by opening their eyes and enabling them to see their need for Jesus Christ and turn to him as Savior? The same God. It is he, Jehovah God, the God of the Bible, who does all these things. And that is the point of our text. So what then do we learn about the true God from this text? First, that he is Jehovah God, the God of the Bible, the Holy Trinity. As I've already said, he tells us all of this ahead of time. He brings it to pass at the ordained time. And he says here explicitly, it proves that he alone is truly God. No one else can do this. I mentioned that later on. He actually makes this point very explicit. There's a point there where he says, now listen... I've never said this to anybody else before. I'm going to tell you now 
So when it comes to pass, no one can claim that it just accidentally came to pass. You know, I, I, here, I'm telling you right now before it happens. And it's being written down. You know, and that's, that's what we learn here. If you worship and serve any God but the God of the Bible, you're sinning against the only true God. The God who created you for himself. And you are commanded to repent and turn to him by trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. It is a gracious, loving invitation to life. But let's be clear here. It's also a divine command that carries with it not only a promise of life, but a threat from God, a warning, if this invitation, this command, is not heeded. And then secondly... What do we learn about the true God here? The true God is in control of all things, all human beings and all that happens in his universe. Again, he proves this by naming people before they even exist, by determining who and what they will be and do. If we refuse to turn to him, it is his predestined just penalty for our sin. If we turn to him by trusting in his servant, Jesus Christ, it is by his almighty grace alone Because he has ordained and savingly called us according to his eternal plan and sovereign purpose. He is in control of all our circumstances. All the circumstances of the universe. Thirdly, more particularly, the true God is in charge of all the nations and rules over them at any given time. Let's think about this from a national point of view. There is no king, there is no president, there is no prime minister, there is no dictator in charge of any nation or people who is not under the control of King Jesus, who does not rule according to the eternal purpose of King Jesus. If they are evil or if they are good, if they are just or if they are unjust, if they are efficient or if they are fools, God has appointed them, established them, usually according to the normal circumstances Uh, under his providential control and is using them for the ultimate good of his covenant people. And this, I believe, is a most important test as far as genuine gospel faith. Do we have true faith, the kind of faith the Bible speaks of, that's not based on sight, it's not seeing as believing, it's we believe because what God has said And we will see. That's the promise. We will see. This will come to pass. But the faithful people believed before they saw the fulfillment. And will we trust God to be in charge when things look so bad? It's easy if things are going well for you in your personal life. And if the the person you wanted voted in as president got elected last term and he's doing all the things you hoped he would do or trying to it might be easy to say, well, I know the Lord's in charge. He's, look at all the good he's doing. What about when it's the other guy who's in? The one you didn't want to get in as president. What about when things aren't going the way you'd like them to go? What about when your own personal life seems to be disintegrating on you? Can you still trust him that he is working all things together for good for his covenant people? Because that's what we're being called upon to do. And that brings me to my fourth point. I said that in regard to nations. The God of the Bible, according to his inscrutable and eternal purpose, has determined, here we're going to get more individualistic, who will be rich and successful, 
who will be poor and defeated. And I'm defining that uh, not just by what we, uh, you know, uh, defining that by uh, as far as how we determine whether someone's successful or not. Do they have a good job? Are they making a lot of money? You know, are they in good health? That's what the world would say are good times. But whether that's happening or the exact opposite, the Lord is in charge and is accomplishing good for we who are his people. The psalmist tells us that victory is not dependent on the military ability of a nation in the end of the day, but on God giving victory or defeat to whom he will. The songs of Hannah, the mother of Samuel, and, the, and Mary, the mother of our Lord. Did you ever notice those are the same psalm, in a sense? It's the same point. Hannah, the mother of Samuel, Mary, the mother of our Lord, uh, in her, uh, her song, that, that prophetic song she sings to Elizabeth. It's the same point, and that is this, that riches and advancement come from the Lord, that poverty and disgrace and demotion comes from him also. See, he is in charge not just of nations, but of every individual. And all of this will be planned and worked out according to God's infinite goodness, justice, wisdom, and truth. We cannot just look at the immediate to understand this. We must wait to see the big picture later. And then all will be made plain to to those who are in heaven. At times, things appear so contrary to God's goodness and justice. But he tells us to trust him and trust in his word no matter how dark things get. Later on, I think it's chapter 50, he talks about uh, trusting him in the darkness. You know, trust in his light in the midst of the darkness. And that's what we're being called upon to do. It's all by faith right now, isn't it? Later, it will be seen and understood openly by God's people, by those saved by grace. But for now, he calls upon us to trust his word because his son died for us and so has proven his continual goodwill towards us. And then, uh, finally, my fifth main application here, we, the church of Jesus Christ, are at the center of God's eternal plan. I begin with that, I end with it. All things work together for our good. All things are for our eternal advancement. Even who is king and when and where they are king and whether there is light or darkness or peace or calamity. And again, we must exercise the gift of faith given us by the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, apart from taking God at his word, we will not be steady and settled in our conviction of his goodness and justice and mercy in the midst of all that happens. For the sake of God's covenant people, good times often come to unbelievers who live in the same country or in close association with God's people. And one of the judgments on the unbelievers is that the only reason they had an earthly life is because uh, they, were, they were inhabiting the same place where God's covenant people were. Their sin would have destroyed them immediately, except they were given time to experience earthly good for the sake of God's covenant people. If there had been nine more guys like Lot, Sodom wouldn't have been destroyed. Think about that. And if, you know any, if, you know, if you've studied it, you know that, that Sodom and Gomorrah were a metropolitan area. They were a huge area. You know, I think it was ten, we get down to, or is it five? 
that, you know, just, just a handful of Christians would have kept the whole place going for a longer period of time. Think of the judgment on those who reject the gospel, perhaps even persecute the people of Christ, and they get to the day of judgment and find out that the only good they ever knew was for the sake of God's covenant people who they mistreated. That they, just by being uh, in the same space as us, that's why they got to experience that. Do you see how important God's covenant people, his blood-bought church is to God? And again, this is incredible to those of us who know we've been saved only by his grace and not for any goodness in us at all. What amazing grace. Well, I've applied this more fully than just Cyrus and post-exilic Israel. For I believe that is where the prophecy takes us ultimately. This is finally about Jesus Christ, God's true, eternal anointed. It's about his church. Those who trust in him and by him repent of their sin. All things are controlled by our God for our good. What a promise. What comfort. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, help us to take to heart what you have made known here in your holy word, to believe by the grace of Jesus Christ administered by the Holy Spirit within us. Help us to believe your promises even during the darkest times. And most of all, that in the the midst of this eternal darkness caused by sin, You have sent forth the light into this world, who is your Son, Jesus Christ, so that all who trust in him by your grace would, by your grace, be in the light forever. Help us to trust you in the midst of our trials, that you will fulfill every promise you've ever made in Jesus Christ, in whose holy name we pray. Amen.